Strangers didn't exist to Giddy Zilberstein. He was instantly best friends with whomever he met, whether at school or in the grocery store. The four-year-old made everyone around him feel special. He would tap on their shoulder and he would say, I love your pretty shoes. And they would be so surprised that this little like four-year-old boy was commenting on their shoes and they would always smile and they would say, well, thank you. And he'd say, what's your name? And a conversation would always get started. We left every situation knowing all of the people around us. That's Jesse Zilberstein, Giddy's mom. She says the young boy always had a smile on his face, even in his dreams when he'd been known to giggle himself awake at night. Sadly, Giddy died three days before his fifth birthday, a shock not only to his parents, but to his two older brothers who witnessed the accident. I really had no choice. I couldn't just lay in bed all day because I had two other children who at the time were eight and ten years old. And I not only had to do the things that you have to do when you have children, I had to, you know, wake them up and make them lunches and get them to school and get them bathed and tuck them into bed and do their laundry. But I had to help them grieve. Five and a half years later, the Zilberstein family continues to keep Giddy's memory alive. And though many recollections are filled with his infectious smile, Jesse says some days are still hard. And even now, you know, it's been five and a half years, but even now we have these times, all bereaved parents have the times where they're like, what am I still alive for? I had this moment when after Giddy died, I remember the first time I went for just like regular checkups, you know, you go, you have your mammogram, you have all these things that can be anxiety provoking just to regular people. Like, what if they find something? What if I have cancer? What if I'm dying? And I had this moment that has occurred many times where I'm kind of like, I'm not scared of death anymore. I kind of think that Giddy's on the other side waiting for me, but I can't die as much as I don't fear it anymore. I fear leaving my other two kids with yet another loss, and I can't do that to them. Jessie says she doesn't know how her family would have survived without the support of their community. Even today, people continue to show up. Every year we still are supported, especially around the time of Giddy's yard site, his death anniversary in the Jewish tradition, and his birthday Our synagogue puts out information about him. They ask us to speak. We have friends that offer to bring us meals. We have our kids' school, especially um, when they were all still at the same elementary school after Giddy died each year. I mean, one year they had like a Giddy dress-up day and everybody wore like Giddy kind of clothes. I mean, everybody's been just super supportive. But Jesse recognizes the incredible friendship she's received isn't always the norm for grieving people. In fact, Dr. Joanne Cacciatore, an expert in traumatic loss, recently conducted a study analyzing this. We asked how satisfied grieving people were with the degree of support, either crisis, whether they were there in the crisis, or long-term support. How satisfied were you with the care that you received? And I have to tell you, it was unimpressable. The percentages were very low. However, there was one category that rated very high with an 89% success satisfaction rate by grieving people, and that was animals. And for me, that tells me all I need to know about what's happening for grieving people in the world. They're not getting the care. They're not getting the support that they need. Liz Castleman knows how it feels to get left behind in her grief. She lost her son, Charlie, two and a half years ago. After years of trying to conceive and multiple rounds of IVF, Charlie came into this world as a 10-pound bundle of happiness. He was almost three and already an impressive toddler. 
he had one of his favorite babysitters is from El Salvador originally. And so she would speak Spanish with him and he couldn't get enough and just very smart. He had been at preschool for about two months and I was putting him down for a nap after school one day and he reached his arms up and he said, I want to grab all the stars and pull them down and stick them on the earth. And then he giggled and I giggled and I was like, where did you learn that? You know, it was such a long sentence for a two-year-old. <laughs> Charlie was dubbed class mayor at preschool, a title Liz says perfectly sums up her outgoing son. Just before Charlie was three, Liz and her husband took him to get an MRI. He was born with a heart murmur and there was a chance he had a more serious heart defect that runs in the family. An hour into the scan, a nurse came into the waiting room to tell them everything was going great. And then shortly after that, my husband noticed that someone had come into the waiting room to grab a code blue card. I don't know why they keep those in the waiting room. And so my husband chased after this person and I followed after him and they already had armed guards blocking the doors that had windows in them. So we could see inside that they had. So Charlie had apparently gone into V-fib or cardiac arrest a little over an hour into the study. And so we were outside that room in the hallway for about an hour as they tried to resuscitate him. And they, of course, weren't successful. And you can imagine, maybe, um, to some degree, our world just went upside down, you know, and it's still that way, just utterly shocking and unbelievable to us. In the days and weeks following, Liz remembers her community being extremely supportive. Over 300 people attended Charlie's memorial service, and the phones were always ringing with messages from concerned friends and family. And though that flood of care helped, Liz says it didn't last when she really needed it. The response is great in the immediate term, and then it fizzles out. And then months, months, and really years later when you need it, pretty much everybody's gone. And in a time when she needed a family to cling to, Liz found only more hurt. Her dad became absent, and though her mom did make it into town, she wasn't someone Liz felt she could lean on. Days after the death, they met with his preschool director to organize Charlie's memorial. My mom, in the middle of us talking about Charlie, reached over and touched my arm and said, you know, this is an opportunity for you to grow. Most people don't get this kind of opportunity. Three months after Charlie's death, Liz's family encouraged her to see a psychiatrist. They were worried that she was still, in their words, too sad. Three months is three minutes in this context. It's nothing. And so I did go see a psychiatrist and I did get on an antidepressant. The lowest dose, I was very leery of it and I didn't want to do it, but I was just sort of trying to appease my family and kind of go with the flow. Liz also began seeing a therapist. She says their weekly Zoom sessions were going fine until the eight-month mark. I could see she was visibly, audibly frustrated with me. She was saying, you have to stop obsessing about Charlie. The other therapist was saying this as well, that I needed to find other hobbies and interests outside of Charlie and motherhood. On top of this, about a year after Charlie's death, Liz says her marriage had become explosive and unstable, citing one specific day as the breaking point. Liz got on a Zoom therapy session after the big fight, and her therapist ended up calling the cops as a precaution. 
I thought that my husband had called them because he had been saying for days that because I was the one that really urged us to get the MRI done earlier than he had thought we should, that I had killed our son. So I thought the police were at our house because I had killed our son and I was going to be arrested. And this is what can happen when your brain and your body are already traumatized. You know, most things feel like an affront. Most things don't make much sense. When the officers walked into the home, they immediately saw the huge poster of Charlie in the living room. I said, that's why you're here, because I had a therapy session and my therapist thought I was too emotionally charged, is what she said later. And that's all it is. And what's surprising, again, the LAPD officers were probably the most compassionate people I had encountered since our son's death at that point. Since that moment, Liz has continued to carve a path of healing without much support. Though she's made progress, Charlie's death can still feel like a terrible nightmare. It's been two and a half years, and I still daily, several times a day, just have kind of smaller waves of shock roll over me now, where I'm just like, I can't believe he's gone. It can be difficult to accept the loss of a loved one, But Jessie says you can't suppress your feelings. She believes the only way to get through it is by allowing yourself to feel every emotion. It gets really hard and really dark. And I know that that feels really scary. But those feelings don't go away if you ignore them. And those feelings don't go away if you cover them up with toxic positivity. They're still going to be there. They don't go away with medication your person is still going to be dead. And so I guess my advice would be to feel all the feelings and to know that sadness and pain can and should coexist with joy and laughter. And it's a lot easier to go through these emotions when you have a support system. Cacciatore says we live in a society that sweeps these people under the rug, whether in fear of not knowing what to say or saying the wrong thing. When people have said to me, I don't want to make you sad. Do you mind if I tell you something? Like, I don't want to bring you down. You seem like you're in a good mood or whatever. It's like, you can't. (laughs) I've been down to the bottom of the bottom. You can't bring me further down. But mentioning him makes me feel like if I'm down at the bottom, I'm not sitting there by myself. People, I hope, would know that you can never go wrong by talking about the person that someone is missing. I think that talking about the person that someone is missing is only going to make that person feel seen and supported and loved and give them the knowledge that their dead person is remembered by other people too. Liz says even just saying the loved one's name means the world to a grieving person. Nobody's going to add any pain onto what I already feel by bringing up his name. But conversely, or the reverse is it's really painful when, you know, especially my brother, someone in my really closest circle decides that talking about him is just too dark. It's too heavy. It's too sad. And they won't even bring up his name. So I think, again, for most people, we want to talk about them. We want to hear their names. We want to see their names up in marquee light. You know, we want to keep them around as much as we can. And in general, if you're trying to comfort a person who's lost a loved one, Liz says the best thing to do is sit and listen. I think, you know, we have this 
sort of societal propensity, like you just want to fix things quickly with medications and other things, but with words and just that you want to fill in the spaces and sort of fix things and kind of prescribe to people what they should do versus just literally sit with them, allow them the space to feel what they're feeling. And just by your presence, you let them know they're not alone. And that's everything. You can find more information about Jesse Zilberstein, Liz Castleman, and Dr. Joanne Cacciatore on our website, radiohealthjournal.org. Our writer-producer is Kristen Farah. I'm Reed Pence. Coming up next week on Radio Health Journal. Everyone has the right to a family, but no one has the fundamental right to a biological family. The ethical implications of commercial surrogacy. Then why breastfeeding isn't a simple answer to the formula shortage. When people just say, well, just breastfeed. Well, once if you aren't breastfeeding, you can't just start breastfeeding. All that and more on Radio Health Journal. I'm Nancy Benson, host of Radio Health Journal. If you enjoy listening to Radio Health Journal, you'll also like our sister show, Viewpoints, which covers a wide array of topics from education to history to the environment. Here's a preview of what they're covering this week on Viewpoints. My cucumbers that I grew this year, I sliced the first one and I was so proud and they were not that big, but they were so tasty. Think gardening's not for you? Think again. Then, I'm seeing a lot of crowds in Europe, and it's not even peak season yet. I mean, people are traveling with a vengeance. The excitement of heading abroad once again. I'm Marty Peterson. And I'm Gary Price. These stories in-depth this week on your public affairs magazine, Viewpoints. And that's Radio Health Journal for this week. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram to learn more. And check Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify for a library of past programs. Plus, you'll always find previous segments and information about our guests at RadioHealthJournal.org. Join us again next week for another edition of Radio Health Journal.